The reading this evening is taken from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 26. And in your church Bibles, that can be found on page 1020. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We're looking at the subject of the Lord's Supper, and we are particularly concerned with how we relate to it. And um, I hope that as a result of this brief uh, reflection on what is possibly a very, very familiar theme for all of us, even sometimes people not familiar with church have an understanding of uh, what communion or the sacrament or the Eucharist is. But how do we relate to the familiarity of the Lord's table? Uh, I want to begin by reading a prayer from the church in Kenya. And uh, I often think of this as as a stimulus and a challenge to me. And it would apply perhaps particularly this evening as we come to communion. Prayer begins like this. From the cowardice that dare not face new truth from laziness that is content with half-truth, from arrogance that thinks it knows all truth. Good Lord, deliver me. I want to give two main headings 
I guess I'm not saying anything new. What I hope, however, is there would be new insights coming to us from this very familiar event of drinking the communion cup and eating of the bread. So we have two headings. The Lord's Supper, as explained by Jesus. And then secondly, the Lord's Supper, as experienced through him. Just those two things. This meal, if you like, is like no other. For example, suppose, as some of you do, you've prepared a lovely meal. And you've got visitors who are coming. And if the visitors were to say something like this, well, of course, the meal isn't important. What we bring is the most important thing. And if you've been preparing all day and so on, you might feel a bit miffed. Well, the Lord's Supper is a bit like that. In itself, it isn't what is important. It's what we bring to it ourselves is of supreme importance. So, the Lord's Supper is explained by Jesus. If you keep that passage open that Elizabeth uh, read to us, we're not going to be too long on this. Just to look at two things, first of all, two subheadings. As it's explained by Jesus, the first, it's the Passover. You have that in verse 22 and 23. And indeed, all the Gospels stress the Lord's Supper as this, the Passover. Now, this had been done for centuries. But somehow, this particular event, as recorded here in all the Gospels, is different. This Passover is different. For generations, the head of the family, and still today in Orthodox Jewish homes, um, at Passover time, the head of the household will take unleavened bread and say, this, holding it up in front of the, the children, the, the emerging generation, and say, this is the bread of affliction. And remind the generation before them that they were slaves under Pharaoh. And God brought them out with a mighty hand. The bread of affliction. But what Jesus does, if you like, as the head of the household with his disciples, he picks up the bread and he breaks with tradition. And you have that very clearly in verse uh, 22 and 23. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. So it's a some sort of transition. The meal is continuing. We're not quite sure of the full details here. And Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they drank from it. There's something quite crucial here, that the substitute Lamb of God that was used to avert the, the angel of death which would come on the Israelites and the Egyptians under the bondage in slavery unless there is the sign of the blood, the angel of death would come and the firstborn male of the family would perish of animal stock as well as 
family. And in order for the Passover to take place, now Jesus says, I am the Lamb of God. And it is in anticipation of his cross and the shedding of his blood. And the disciples would have related to it. But the way that they would relate to it would be in this way. That the Passover lamb died instead of Israel. They knew that. And so there was the great liberation. They were brought out. But now the Passover lamb is going to die instead of them and for future generations. Not simply God's people, Israel. And it's no surprise that when Jesus begins his ministry, you find John the Baptist saying, Look! And it's a powerful declaration, which perhaps we can't make the obvious connection. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you have an echo of that repeatedly throughout the Gospels. The Passover. With an added dimension. And then the second thing, as Jesus explains um, that this uh, supper, communion, variously referred to, a new covenant. A new covenant. You have this in verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant. Uh, in some other translations, certainly other Gospels, new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. New covenant. Here is something which is a formal, binding, contractual agreement. And in ancient times, it would be customary for a covenant to be ratified by blood. Indeed, you know, this idea, the symbolizing of a, of, of a ring, often the, the, the ring of affection would be, uh, or the finger of it would be cut, and two people would, would, in, in, would have would, uh, the shedding of blood to symbolize the most powerful commitment in marriage. That's, that's, that's its roots. But here now he's talking about a new covenant, not, not so much between two people, but between God and all people, potentially, as we enter into this. A new covenant. And now Jesus, by urging his disciples to, to be participators, not spectators, to eat and drink of this, he is stressing this personal application of his death. Just turn to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 6, just to see how this is emphasized um, by Jesus. And the, the, the Jewish people missed the point altogether. John, chapter 6, and verse 53. It couldn't be said better. And so let Jesus speak for us here. John, chapter 6, verse 53, page 1071. They missed the point in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is this? Cannibalism? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you can eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And so on and so forth. Now, this idea of the new covenant. John Stott's got an interesting uh, comment here. And I, just, it, it, I think it's quite helpful um, when he tries to explain this. Uh, let me just, uh, just read it to you um, from, from uh, one of his books. He says this. The communion bread is broken. It stands for the body of Jesus, not as lived physically in Galilee or Judea, but as it was broken or given in death on the cross. The wine is poured out. It stands for the blood of Jesus, not as it flowed in his veins while he lived, but as it was shed on the cross. So... The body and blood of Christ signify not Christ's life, but his death. This do in remembrance of me. As often as you eat of my bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim my death. Of course, it is in anticipation of the resurrection as well. Passover and the new covenant. So the covenant itself is not new. But what makes it new is the way we participate. The way by faith we come. Not relying on any external priest or or deacons or, or anything other than that by faith we take this bread, we drink of this cup and we feed on Jesus Christ. The Passover, the new covenant. We become participators, partaking. Okay, that's the second heading very quickly then. The Lord's Supper as experienced through him. That's that's where we are now. And we we need now to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 10. It's a rather familiar passage and it will be good just to um, stay with this. 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks? And that's a custom here. One of the deacons will give thanks for the cup, one for the bread, as we shall do in a moment. It doesn't have to be them. It's just the way that we do it. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many, are one body, for we partake of one loaf. And there's an interesting change here. This is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 11 as well gives uh, a further comment. So let me just say four, um, four brief headings, four ingredients, if you like, that are always present at any time when we come to communion, as we're going to come tonight. So, if you turn over one page in 1 Corinthians 11, and you'll see that this unfolds uh, progressively before you now. Uh, So, we have 
1 Corinthians 11 and uh, verse uh, 17, for example. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine saying, I go to church and it does, does me more harm than good? That's what Paul is actually saying. Here is the church behaving badly. And if somebody was ever to say to you, I'm not going to church, there's too many hypocrites there, you should reply, it's all right, there's room for another one. We don't defend the church like as if we are such perfect people. We are saved sinners. And sometimes the church does have difficulties. We need to admit to that and, 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 and be open and honest. So, the, the first thing that we have then is this element of remembrance. Paul reminds them why this meal is given. You have it in verses 24 and 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you have it at the end of verse 25 as well, as you can see. Paul reminds them why this meal is given. But why is it given? This meal, if you like, is, is, is meant to be to, to anchor the church to the cross. There are certain times when the church community has become adrift from the cross. And it's instead of being cross-centered, the church has become eccentric, off-center. And behaves badly, as is the case here. Why? What, what's going on here? Well, this agape feast, a bit like what we call our fellowship lunches, verse 18, in the first place I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent I believe it. These are not just rumors. It's true. No doubt there are differences among you. Show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each one goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry. One gets drunk. Can you imagine a church like that? We'll read on and you see it's a church behaving very badly. So Paul is saying that this should anchor us to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is pivotal to all that we believe. And we are not to be adrift from it. And secondly, this meal is to focus our vision on the Lord Jesus himself. And the sad thing is that at this point here, he was blurred and obscured by, by other people's agenda and by selfishness. And it's little wonder that the great hymn of the church then in 1 Corinthians 13, which is often read at, at weddings and perhaps rightly so. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and impress so many people and have not love and so on, I am nothing. And that's a corrective to, to selfishness. We remember Jesus Christ. He is everything. And secondly, communion. You have this, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, uh, for, for instance, where we have already read this. Uh, is, it, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And so on. So, in remembrance, we relate to the past by definition, isn't it? You can't remember the future. You remember, by its very nature, the past. It's a looking back. However, in communion, you are relating to the present. I spoke to Helen Wood this morning. She's going to have a gap here. She's going to go back to, to you. 
Tanzania. And I said, Helen, being, having lived in Tanzania for a long time, sometimes in life you have to go back before you can go forward. Well, that is certainly true at the Lord's table. We look back to our roots, but we don't stay there. It's not escapism. You look back, you remember, in order to participate in the present. Communion is essentially how we relate now, tonight, as if this could be the very last time that we will ever do so. So communion, what is it? It is, it is a common participation which unites us as Christian people. So the real presence of Christ is not the symbols, it's not the bread and the wine. The real presence is in our hearts as shared participants. I want to read to you from this uh, interesting book uh, by Graham Tomlin, who's the, um, uh, the principal, deputy principal of uh, Wycliffe Hall uh, Training College in Oxford currently. And in this book that he's written, it's a very interesting book called uh, The Provocative Church, he relates uh, an account, and I want to read it to you, uh, and it'll become obvious as, as I do. A few years ago, a friend of mine walked into his local church expecting the normal midweek Bible study. As he entered, he saw a group of people sitting around in a circle as usual. So, took a seat. Noticing absent-mindedly that there seemed to be quite a few new people this week, in fact, as he looked closer, he realized that he didn't recognize anybody at all. Looking at his watch, he realized that he'd stumbled into the wrong meeting. By this stage, however, a woman was speaking about the kind of week she had had and how she'd managed to avoid it. At that point, whatever it was. She'd avoided it for most of the week, apart from a few minor slips. And as each per person took his turn to speak, my friend realized he had stumbled into a meeting of the local branch of the Alcoholics Anonymous. Before long, he mumbled some apology, embarrassed apology, and left. But not, however before the meeting had made an impression on him. What is this impression? And we're thinking about communion, the communality of our sharing together. This is what he says. There seemed a measure of honesty, admission of failure, celebration of success, Mutual encouragement in a common struggle that he had rarely found previously in Bible study meetings, which had often appeared rather dry and academic. The people who had gathered for the alcoholics meeting came because they knew they needed help. 
I wonder how often do we come to the Lord's table because we need help. We need grace to help in time of need, not simply to keep uh, our membership or anything else. It's a, it's, a, it's a communal event. It's the great leveler. And in our need, we come to confess again our love for Jesus Christ. Thirdly, and very quickly, fellowship. You, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 18. And you'll see this phrase, come together, when you come together. Not if you come together. When you come together, five times. So it's assumed beyond question that these people who know and love the Lord Jesus are precisely going to come together. Five times within those constraint uh, of, of uh, verses. So clearly, Paul is assuming that the church are going to come together in this profound expression of unity in Christ Jesus. And this corporate, collective dimension is often obscured, perhaps, look, here we are tonight, by uh, the, the, the surrounding of, of chairs and our pews or tradition. And somehow we're inhibited. If you go back to that group of people who had just one thing in common, a need to share together how they were going to sustain one week, one more week, without falling prey to the temptation of alcohol. When I was in Ireland, I met a young man, uh, and in the course of the meal, he ordered a Coke. And he said, I'm an alcoholic. I've been an alcoholic for ten years. And I'm only one day away from falling. Now, with that stark realism, we need to come to the Lord's table, not being presumptuous, however long. And we say, this is my opportunity to meet with the risen Christ. It's a fellowship. Maybe we should be like our Anglican friends and at a certain point have the peace and, and go round and, and share and reach out and say, the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you. So we interact a bit more. And the last thing that we have is, as it's experienced through Jesus, this familiar feast. Yes, it's a remembrance. It's a looking back. It's a communion. It's an encounter now. It's a fellowship. It's, it's our togetherness. Our mutual need. Solidarity of sinners who have found liberation in Jesus Christ. And of course, one last thing that we have is hope. Hope. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. And here it is. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Living in the light of that great event. Dying in the light of that great event until he comes. Do you see the point? The, the remembrances are looking back. Communion is an encounter now in the present. Hope. Glorious future. Do you see these elements that, that are brought together like this? 
at the Lord's table. The future perspective until he comes or until he calls. The participation tonight at this table is linked to a preparation in heaven. The one an extension of the other. The fact that the Lord's Supper has been abused, neglected, trivialized, is not in any question at all. But it's a challenge for us not to criticize what other people have done now, but to be sure that we come in the right spirit, the right heart, committing ourselves afresh to Jesus Christ, asking for his forgiveness, Seeking grace in our time of need. Indeed, a former generation used to call this the means of grace. And some of the older generation used to say, I'm going to the means. That's what they used to say when they used to go into a communion service. It's a means, it's a, it's a vehicle of grace to me tonight, this morning, now. And it is to us. I hope, by God's Spirit, we can relate to the Lord Jesus afresh through this communion. And as we do that, let's be active. Let's not be passive.